Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Andrew Plummer, Director of the Centre for Power Transmission and Motion Control, will discuss recreating earthquakes in a laboratory to test how buildings perform under extreme conditions. So, um, as uh, Kevin mentioned, I'm uh, Director of the Centre for Power Transmission and Motion Control here at Bath, and our centre... Um, is concerned with a, a lot of aspects of uh, the, the design and control of machines that move. But clearly, today, I'm just going to be talking about uh, uh, machines that are designed to replicate um, earthquake motion for, uh, for testing purposes. And I should acknowledge Instron. As Kevin mentioned, I uh, used to work for them. So my interest and involvement in this area uh, began whilst I was with, with them. Um, so I'll spend a few minutes talking about the motivation, um, look at an earthquake simulation table or a, a shaker table as, as, as Dina has introduced in her, her studies, but a particularly large one that's been developed um, in Japan. Um, and I'll go into some of the enabling technology, get, get into the engineering, if you like, um, and, and some of the uh, research and development work that's going on at the moment. So um, for most engineered products, most things that we can buy have gone through a process, um, a development process that involves testing. So whether it's uh, a car, say, in a, a crash test at the top there, or um, uh, using a, um, a ride simulator here to put uh, loads, road loads into the vehicle to test for, for durability purposes, um, or a, a medical um, implant testing system like the, the spinal test system there on the, the right. Or this one is an aerospace test rig. This is actually an Airbus A380 buried in there somewhere with a wing load test ongoing. So lots of forces on the wing to, to see where, when it breaks. So that's a, a normal engineering development activity. Unfortunately, most buildings that are designed don't go through that sort of testing process. And so we only really know how they fail when an extreme loading condition occurs, such as an earthquake. Um, so these pictures are from the uh, Japanese Kobe earthquake in 1995. Um, you know, very, uh, a great deal of destruction and devastation associated with that earthquake. And people in Japan at that time um, were, there was a lot of consternation about the degree of damage that was sustained and the number of so-called earthquake-resistant buildings that collapsed, for example. So um, that uh, particular event, the Kobe earthquake, um, inspired a lot of um, uh, investment into um, uh, trying to find out more about uh, earthquake resistance of buildings and, uh, and how, to, uh, how to overcome uh, some of the deficiencies. And um, one thing as a result of uh, the earthquake was the development of the world's largest shaking table. So that started in, um, uh, the plans were laid just after uh, 1995, just after the earthquake, and um, the, built, the, uh, the shaking table was actually completed in 2006. So this test that's going on at the moment um, shows uh, two houses. The one on the left, maybe I'll uh, 
um, start that again so we can see it again. The one on the left is what has been described to me as a, uh, a standard design Japanese house, so I think it's a wood frame building. Um, and 80% of the fatalities in uh, the Kobe earthquake were due to the collapse of this type of building. The one on the right is a, a similar design, but it's, it has some reinforcement. Um, and clearly it's, it's more, uh, much more uh, uh, resistant to the type of motions that that shaking table is uh, providing. So it's only with a facility such as this can um, full-scale buildings be uh, really tested to destruction. And this particular facility is designed for testing buildings up to six-story tower blocks. Um, but as you can imagine, uh, it's not easy to design and build and control such a system. So we'll just talk about um, the details of, of, of the design of the shaking table a little bit. These are just some, some more pictures of the shaking table where you can see a little bit better that we have a, it's actually a 15 times 20 meter table surface. We have some horizontal actuators that come in to push the table horizontally either in X or Y. We also have vertical actuators underneath the table which can shake it vertically. So we can actually move in all degrees of freedom. So um, all three translational degrees of freedom and also rotate um, in all directions as well. The table itself weighs 750 tons, so that's quite a lot to move about before you put any, uh, any specimen, any building on top. And the building, the maximum building mass it's designed for is 1,200 tons, so it's about uh, 2,000 tons combined weight that you have to move. So if we're replicating a, an earthquake, um, what do we actually have to do? What, what movements do we have to make? Well, um, in order to accommodate most of the earthquakes that have been measured, we need to be able to move that table by up to two meters. And we actually have to do that movement in um, uh, a second or less. So we, ha we have to be able to move at two meters per second. We also have to accelerate um, at round about one G, which is actually quite a lot. Um, so that's about 70% of the acceleration of a Formula One car, for example. Um, earthquakes also have rapidly changing direction of motion. So oscillations can occur at up to around about 15 hertz. So we need to be able to control the motion um, at those high frequencies. And as I mentioned, we, we need to accommodate on, on certainly this system, we need to accommodate uh, test specimens up to 1,200 tons, which... Uh, um, would account for uh, a multi-story tower block. And then normally in earthquake simulation, we're trying to replicate a particular acceleration signal that's been measured um, from a real earthquake. So the, the darker line in this trace is an acceleration signal measured from the Kobe earthquake. Um, and the, uh, the fainter line is actually what the shaking table does when we try and control it to follow that, um, that acceleration. So it, it follows it um, not perfectly, but it, it's, not, it's not too bad. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about the control that can achieve um, accurate following in a, in a minute. So the, um, the design of the table has 24 actuators, which are hydraulic actuators, which I'll talk about 
um, in, a, in a moment again. Each actuator can produce 450 tons of force. So um, that's about 10 times the thrust of a large aero engine. So that's just one actuator can do that. Um, and so, you know, we've got a very powerful system. We, we've got 24 actuators simply to, be, to, to spread the load on, over the, um, the table structure. Um, so, for example, the 14 of those actuators are underneath. Um, if we had less actuators, we could design a system like that, but there'll be more bending moments on the, on the table itself. So it's, it's largely to, to spread the load. If we were just to concentrate on one actuator, so one of those hor horizontal actuators, I'll uh, just try and describe how that works, how that actually pushes the table. Um, it's actually all done with fluids, um, which I think is you know, quite surprising. Um, the power comes from fluid. It actually comes from compressed air. Um, and the control to be able to do that accurate sort of motion following, that comes from fluid as well. That comes from controlling the movement of hydraulic oil. Um, the actuator itself consists of a, a piston in a cylinder. This thing dangling off the bottom is a, a valve to control oil entering the cylinder. The oil, hydraulic oil, comes from a thing called an accumulator. And then when it's used, it's deposited back into a tank take a cross-section through that lot. Um, so as I say, the power actually comes from, well, I said compressed air. It's not quite true. It's compressed nitrogen. It's pretty much the same thing. So we have a cubic meter of nitrogen compressed at 200 bar, which is 200 times atmospheric pressure. And that, that contains a lot of energy. And then that energy is transferred to um, high-pressure oil, um, which then goes via the valve, and the valve itself um, is, is quite a significant piece of engineering because it can deliver three-quarters of a cubic meter of oil every second. But probably what's more surprising, it has to open in a hundredth of a second and close again in another hundredth of a second to be able to give the uh, high frequency of control that's required. Um, and once the oil's been uh, through the actuator, it goes back into a, a tank at atmospheric pressure. So um, when the valve opens uh, to push the table to the right, uh, the way it does that is to allow high-pressure oil into the left-hand side of that uh, cylinder. Um, and similarly, when it wants to go back to the left, the valve opens to, have, to allow high-pressure oil into the right-hand side of the cylinder. And all the time that the cylinder is moving, the piston is moving, we've got oil being discharged out of the accumulator and eventually ending up in the tank. Um, so that does limit the duration of the test that we can do. But we can design the system, or the system is designed, to accommodate the appropriate length of test. The bit that I haven't mentioned is after the test, somehow we've got to get this low-pressure oil back into the accumulator so there's a pump that does that. One particular reason, I think, for, for sort of talking about how this works is that there's no other technology that even comes close to, be able to, to being able to deliver the power levels and the, the level of control that's needed other than this fluid approach. So fluid power 
It's the only thing that can do this. And um, we're um, fortunate, I suppose, in Bath that we uh, have the only uh, significant um, sort of research center, research activity in fluid power in the UK. And, and in fact, we're one of the leading two or three in the world in, the, in this area. So it's a, an expertise, a specialism that we're particularly good at. Um, that's concentrating on the power side. Just look at the control a little bit more. Traditionally, um, these things are controlled by a computer, but the way it's done is the measured acceleration that we need to replicate is converted into a positional uh, variation um, of, the, uh, of the piston. Um, and a computer controller takes a measurement of piston position. We don't actually use a ruler, that's just representative. You know, there's a sensor there that measures position um, that's fed into the computer, compared with our desired position at any particular time, and the computer opens the valve appropriately to try and get the actuator to follow the desired position. Um, unfortunately, there are a number of problems with this approach. Um, and I have to delve a little bit into the engineering detail to show what the problems are. Um, we design everything to be as stiff as possible. But unfortunately, with the large forces that are involved with uh, this sort of system, everything does actually deform. So really, where we've got a, um, a push rod here, which we like to think is stiff, it's not really stiff. It acts more like a spring. And the mounting of the cylinder here, again, it acts like a spring. So it means that um, controlling the piston position isn't accurately, isn't a good way of accurately controlling the actual motion of the table, because we've got these springs in the way. But also, more than that, those springs combined with actually the compressibility of the hydraulic oil itself means that the table has a tendency to bounce. So we've got a big mass on a spring, has a tendency to bounce at a, a natural frequency. Um, and that bounce frequency is well below the maximum test frequency. And actually, um, for a traditional control system that we've just shown, we can't really control it at or above the bounce frequency. So it's out of control um, above, that, above, above that frequency. So we can't actually go up to the maximum test frequency that we want. There are a number of other problems with the um, traditional control method about um, actuators interacting in a way that we don't like, but uh, I think I won't labor that point. Just before um, we look at perhaps a better control method, let's just see whether um, we can improve the situation by actually just making things a bit smaller. Because the e-defense table, which is the one in Japan, uh, is clearly enormous. Um, and the one that Dina was using that we have here, or this one, which is an earthquake simulation table down the road in Bristol, um, the table here is about three meters by three meters, is clearly a, a lot smaller. Um, now, making it smaller, obviously it's a lot cheaper, a lot less resources required, but you can only build scale models on the table. Um, now, there's a problem with building scale models uh, just uh, to uh, build a, a model that's representative of the real full-scale full structure um, that will behave in a representative way. That's actually very difficult to begin with. But let's put that aside and just think of the difficulties in machine control. Um, do they actually get easier 
if we scale things down. Um, the key thing to look at is this natural bounce frequency of the table. Um, see whether um, we can get that out of the test frequency, test range that we want to, uh, we want to use. So there are some good things about scaling things down. So here we've got, we're saying we're scaling down by a factor of a half, quarter, eight, and eight. Um, as we scale, scale down, of course the mass of everything comes down, so that's a good thing. Unfortunately, the stiffness, so the stiffness of the hydraulic actuators and their mounting, those mechanical bits, that actually comes down as well, which isn't a good thing. However, because the mass comes down faster than the stiffness, then the natural frequency, this bounce frequency, actually increases. So that's, that's good. Um, we're increasing our, our testing range, it seems. Unfortunately, when we scale down, uh, we find in order to do a representative test, we actually have to compress time, which means we have to do things more quickly. So if we, um, it actually turns out if we have a scale factor of a quarter, we have to do everything twice as fast, which means that our test frequency increases, and that increases at the same rate as the natural frequency. So in fact, we don't get any benefit at all um, we're still ending up with a, a natural bounce frequency well below the maximum test frequency. So it doesn't actually get easier to control the machine if it's smaller. So, right, what can we do in terms of control? Um, so this is really where our research um, has made an impact. Um, the method that, that um, we've developed is... Uh, well, what we call up the intelligent computer control, and that actually uses a, a detailed mathematical dynamic model of uh, of the thing we're controlling, which is which is the table and the actuators over here. And we um, that mathematical model means that we can, uh, uh, if we knew what uh, the valve control signals were, the opening, the way the valves open, we can work out the uh, the motion of the table. But we can actually invert that. We can reverse all the equations to allow us to say, if we know what our desired acceleration is, which we do, we can work out what the valve control signals need to be um, in order to, to get the table to do that motion. Um, now, that's all you would need if your model was perfect, but it never is. So in control engineering, we use feedback to um, uh, tackle the problem of errors and uncertainty. So um, we'll need to measure some things about the table, do a comparison between the actual accelerations and the uh, desired accelerations, and use some algorithm to add a little bit more into the um, valve control signal to correct that um, to, to, to do the best, uh, best we can. Um, so the... The reason that we can do this sort of thing now compared to the, the traditional control methods, um, uh, we know a little bit more about modeling the dynamic behavior of the parts of this system. We know a little bit more about control algorithm, algorithms that we can put in here. But in reality, the reason that we can do this now is because computers are faster than they were a few years ago. Computers are clearly always getting faster, well, so far anyway. And in order to implement this sort of system, 
um, we need uh, something like this, 100,000 calculations to solve this set of equations, and we have to do that 2,500 times a second. So that's a hell of a lot of calculations um, to do very quickly. So you need uh, reasonable computing power, but actually to do that, the computing power required is still, or is now, only a very small fraction of the total cost of the system. So it's, it's quite um, feasible to do that. Um, I should say the uh, Japanese shaping, shaking table I showed you, the very big one, um, that uses a control system that's somewhere between the traditional one and this sort of approach. So it sort of has some of the features of this sort of approach, but it's not, not, not everything. We have implemented this control system on a, a table in, in China, in Beijing, institute called IWHR. It's a five by five meter table, which is principally used for testing dams, which means that, because clearly dams are quite big, to fit them on a table, <laughs> you have to use a very, very big scaling factor, which means you need to test at high frequencies. So this table is designed for testing at uh, up to 100 hertz and, and sometimes beyond. Um, and um, this sort of diagram is, is used and controlled quite a lot to, to show how well a, um, a machine is, is behaving. Um, what this is showing is we've got frequency down the bottom, so that's how, how fast you're trying to shake it, and you're increasing frequency towards the right. And if you're... If you're close to zero, then that means that the machine is, is doing what you're asking it to do. It's following that, that signal. Um, but as it deviates from, from an amplitude ratio of zero, then things are going wrong. So using a traditional method, um, that table in Beijing shows that around about 15 hertz and beyond, we get significant deviation. It's really not controlling that, that, that uh, motion in the way that it should. But using the, the, the new intelligent method, we can get reasonably close to this, this zero level, um, right up to uh, 100 hertz. So it does make a very dramatic difference to the ability to uh, control this sort of machine. So this is my last slide. Um, just thinking about the future a little. So we've, we're able to develop and implement these um, fairly complex model-based control strategies. Um, but actually, it still takes a lot of expertise to set them up. So um, perhaps the next step is to be able to automatically set up these control strategies using some sort of self-learning techniques. Um, also, what I haven't mentioned is that you have to make some assumptions about how the specimen is behaving on the table um, in order to uh, use this sort of controller. And maybe... Uh, making the control method more robust means less sensitive to unpredictable specimen be behavior is, is a next step. Fluid power, as I've said, fluid power is the only thing that can be used or only thing that we know that can be used for controlling this level of power to this accuracy. Um, one thing that perhaps we need to try and do is improve efficiency in fluid power because that sort of system that I showed you is is... Uh, very inefficient, so wastes a lot of energy. Um, it's certainly very difficult to see at the moment how we can get the same level of control with improved efficiency, but it's clearly a matter for research. And finally, I think one area we'll see a significant growth in the future is 
uh, what I've called model in the loop testing, sometimes called hybrid testing, where in fact, perhaps you don't need to build your entire building or model building um, uh, on a shaking table to test it because it may be that some parts of that building, you actually know how they behave pretty well. So you could simulate those in a computer. And some other parts, perhaps you don't know, so you need to do some physical testing. But if you can build a system which has the virtual or computer simulation part working together with the physical, physically tested part in one integrated system, then that's probably um, a, a more cost-effective way of, of testing, um, uh, testing a structure. Um, so that's, again, an area which is a matter for research. So I think I've, I've basically finished, but um, uh, just one other video of the, of the Japanese shaking table, this time with a, a six-story um, reinforced concrete building being tested. Um, so I think that's sort of getting up to the 1,200-ton payload limit. Um, this one doesn't fall down, but it, which I think is probably quite fortunate, given what it might destroy if it did. Um, I think there's a view also of what happens inside as you do that test. Um, you will see the, the reinforcement is quite important here because the concrete, there isn't much left of it at the joints by, by the time the test is finished. Okay, thank you very much.